Hello, and welcome back to Life Struggles podcast, or welcome, in case you haven't been here before. Is it your first time here? Well, then you're going to love our stories of life struggles. These include stories of addictions, relationships, low self-esteem, narcissism, PTSD, among many others, all from real, raw people who have been there and are here now to share their stories with you. So sit back, grab your favorite beverage or food, and enjoy. Hi, please help me welcome Tommy. Hi, Christy. How are you today? Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I, I've been waiting for this, and I'm just super excited to hear about your story. So yes. how about if we start at the beginning? Okay. Um, that's where I always start. You know, um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I was born in 1975, so I was, you know, coming of age in the early to mid-80s and, you know, in the early 90s. And um, I grew up around a lot of people that I looked up to and I admired and one of them was my father. And these were tough guys, you know, guys that were in the street committing crimes. And um, those are the people I looked up to as a little kid. And I wasn't like that. You know, that wasn't me. I wasn't a tough guy. I was a smart, shy kid. I was good at sports. All I wanted to do was play with my friends and hang out. But I always looked at these other people as somebody, some people that I really looked up to. You know, and um, in my book, I talk about it at the beginning. I um, before I ever picked up any substances or alcohol, I was still trying to change myself. And when I was about seven or eight years old, um, a bunch of kids were playing down the block, the older guys that I looked up to. And they called me over and they handed me a plastic wiffle ball bat wrapped in black tape and stuffed with wet newspaper. And they handed it to me and they told me to go hit somebody in the head with it. Oh and gosh. I knew, yeah, because that's the way it was. That's the way these kids were. And Just me wanting to fit in for no reason, no reason at all. He was a, he was a kid that got picked on. Um, nice kid. You know, I wound up becoming friends with him later on in life. Um, but anyway, I, I grabbed the bat and I you know, walked over to the other side of the street that I lived on. And he said hello to me. And I just swung and I hit him in the head with the bat. And I, he went inside crying. I ran back to these kids. They were all high-fiving me. And for a moment, I was excited. I was happy. And I felt accepted. And then I went to my house. Was that kind of like a game? No, no. They were just a bunch of kids that, you know, they lived on my block. You know, they were just all friends. And um, they thought that it would be a good idea for me to do this. They wanted to see if I would do it. And I did it. And um, kid, Did you know that you did it too? Yes, I know. I know. He lived on the block. I had gone to nursery school with him. And um, like I said, I became friends with him later on in life. And uh, And I just wanted to clarify. Yeah. So I go home and now it's about an hour later. Now I feel bad, you know, because that's not me. And I felt bad because I liked him. Mm -hmm. About a half hour after that, his father comes to my house with the son and he starts screaming at my mother, you know, telling him what I did and all this, that, the other thing. And all she did was turn around to me and say, wait till your father gets home. Now, my father was a thing. 
Yeah, you know, my father was uh, the best way I could describe him is like central casting out of a mafia movie. That's what he looked like. You know, very stocky Italian man, slicked back hair, the jewelry, the whole nine. You know, drove the big white Cadillac. Wow. And uh, never hit me, never had to. I was just, he was just intimidating. You know, all he had to say was stop, and I stopped. So, uh, you know, I'm scared now. He comes home about, you know, two or three hours later. I hear the gate. I hear him calling me. I go downstairs and now I'm walking out of the house and, you know, I turn around to my mother and my mother's just like, you know, you did this to yourself. You know, you deal with the consequences. And we get in the car and he doesn't say a word to me. You know, he's got his oldies music on and he just drives That's the car. That's scarier, isn't it? When I know. make you wait. Oh my God. Yeah. He didn't say a word. So drives the car. We get to where we're going. Turns the car off and he just looks at me. He used to wear glasses and he looked over them like over his nose, just with his oh, eyes. And he looked at me. Yeah, he looked at me and he said, Tommy, what did you do? What did, why did you hit this kid in the head with the bat? And I'm like, I can't tell my father that these guys made me do it. Because then he'll think I'm like this little. Yeah. So I said that, I, I don't know. He pushed me and he made fun of mommy. That's the first thing that came to my head. So he looks at me, shakes his head. He's like, all right, come on. And he, we get out of the car, we walk into a diner and we walk into the back and there's like four or five guys sitting at a table. And I recognize a couple of them, my father's friends. And they're looking at my father and I can't see my father, he's behind me. And they start smiling. I turn around, my father's laughing. And he starts telling these guys what I did and why I did it. And now they all did the same thing that those older kids on the block did to me. They congratulated me. They uh-huh. gave me money. Yeah, they bought me ice cream and I was rewarded for hitting somebody in the head with a bat and then lying about it. You know, so my father just looked at me. He said, don't tell your mother that, you know, did tell her I told you never to do this again. Yeah, but that was my father. You know, my father came from that mold. He was, um, he was a, you know, part-time criminal, you know, part-time business owner. He had some connections with the mob and um, he was also a very bad gambler. And he got into some trouble with them. So that's the kind of guy he wanted to be. And he portrayed. So when he saw this of me, he saw himself and he was proud of me. So from a very young age, you know, I did something to fit in that wasn't me. I got rewarded for it. All the people that I wanted to see me in this great light did. Because of all the people I wanted to impress, my father was number one. Why do you And I got to... It was my father, you know, he was the first man I looked up to. And uh, I just, he was very magnetic. He was very charming. He was very outgoing. Um, I liked the way people reacted to him. I liked the way people treated him. And it was just something I admired. Um, that I mean, back then. Because I have a, a, a younger boy. I've got a girl and a boy. And my son didn't start looking up to his dad until he was like 20. Then it, all growing up, it was me. Yeah. You see, so I was the opposite. Okay. I so was the opposite. Afterwards, you went to looking. Yeah. Up. Well, 
yeah, well, there was more that happened than, you know, I get into that. Um, yeah. So right. that's my, that's my first, you know, interaction with changing myself to fit in and almost getting a high from it. And then when I got in trouble, I lied and I got out of it. I got rewarded. And that's just how kind of my life went after that. I was a good kid for the most part. You know, I went on, I played baseball, I played hockey. I was a great student. Did your dad go to all those things? Um, my father was my, uh, my father coached me in baseball. He came to all my hockey games. Um, listen, my, you fast forward, um, I'm 15, 16 years old and my parents, uh, they get divorced. Okay. You know, my father pulls me in one day. By now, our relationship had kind of soured. I kind of started all those things that I looked up to and I admired. I started to look look at it for what they were. And, um, you know, he was a serial adulterer. He cheated on my mom all the time. He didn't treat her very well at all. He lost multiple businesses gambling. Um, you know, there was always somebody coming to the house, somebody calling the house that he owed money to. And as I got older, I, that stuff started to turn me off, you know, and our relationship kind of started to sour. Um, so when my, they divorced, who did you live with? My mother. My mother. After my parents got divorced, I, I saw my father about three or four more times before he passed away. Um, okay. Yeah, my, my mother. Well, my mother, my aunt, my aunt, my two cousins had moved into the house, into the second floor of my house. And my two cousins were older than me, 13 years and 17 years older than me. But they were like my brother and sister. And my aunt was like my second mother. So it wasn't even a question of where I was going to go. You know, my father had nowhere to go. My father went and lived with his girlfriend in Rockaway, you know, and as he's leaving the house, he tells me all these things that my mother doesn't want him anymore. And then hands me a phone number to his girlfriend's house and says, if you need me, I'll be here. You know, so that's the kind of guy my father was. And, um, yeah, I was very resentful for a long time, you know, before much later on in life, I kind of came to terms with it. And, um, so gave when you, were younger, you weren't resentful when you were, you were looking up to him. So it wasn't, was it the divorce that actually changed? It was the, it was the divorce. It was, it was what he did to my, it was what he did to my mother. It was the way he kind of changed, you know, as time went on and his, he had addictions too, his gambling and sex addiction. And so all that stuff changed his personality, you know, and he just wasn't, fun to be around anymore he wasn't a nice guy and he kind of resented the relationship I had with my older cousin um he resented the fact that I had quit baseball and started playing hockey and um you know we just butted heads and I was happy at the time I thought I was happy to see him leave you know um probably still uh, had that fear of abandonment too yeah, no, I did. I did. That was my first real bout with it, you know, and I never really dealt with that so much later on in life. But so at 16, my father leaves. And now all those kids that I had looked up to in the street, you know, they're all older now and they're hanging out on corners and in bars and they're drinking and they're smoking cigarettes and smoking pot. And again, you know, I want to hang out with these people. You know, I want to fit in. And my alcohol didn't start where I said, oh, I want to drink to feel a different way. That's not why it started. It started because I thought 
if I drank, I could hang out with these kids and they would accept me. Once I, once I did drink, it changed me and I liked the way it made me, you know, so I, and usually alcohol is like an inhibitor. And so you do things that you wouldn't normally do and act weights that you wouldn't it, normally act. And exactly. Um, you get brave. You know, like I said, yeah, like I said, I was a shy kid, you know, and um, I was shy around certain people like my friends. Once I got to know you, I was very outgoing and very open, and funny. But once I got around the new group of people, it was I just withdrew. And once I drank, the first time I drank alcohol, I'll never forget, you know, it was in the back of my friend's car. You know, it was peach snaps and vodka. And I went to a party that night and like this girl that I had liked, I couldn't talk to her. And then that night I walked right up to her. I didn't even think about it. Talked to her. I was funny. I was charming. I was everything that I couldn't be when I was when I was sober. Yeah. And and I loved it. I loved the way it made me feel. And, you know, from then on, it's just something that it was just part of my life after that. No, I really, so anything I did involved that? alcohol. Excuse me? I'm sorry. So what, what age was the, the alcohol started? I was, it was either late, I was either late 15 or I had just turned 16 when I, when I drank. It was my June, I'm sorry, 16 to 17. It was my senior year in high school. It was the summer going into my senior year of high school. Okay. My birthday's in September, so like okay, 16, so 17 years then, old. then you kind of did things here and there but you weren't doing like drugs or alcohol no I never never drank you know never so none of those did drugs black were doing drinking or drugs none or- of my none of my friends were but the older guys were but by now these older guys weren't hanging out on the block anymore they were hanging out on the corner and in the schoolyard right. that you know right. the whole neighborhood used to hang out in. and I wanted to hang out there you know but I didn't feel comfortable but once I started drinking I felt comfortable going there and, so would you, know, you it was, call alcohol your gateway drug then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was the first one. You know, it was the first thing I did. Actually, cigarettes were the first thing. Um, I stole... Um, drug? What? Cigarettes considered a drug? I don't think they're considered a drug, but it's definitely a behavior that, uh, that I picked up to fit in and wound up getting addicted to. So nicotine is a drug. Oh, you know? yeah, I guess so. So I saw my friend walking down the block. He was talking to these two girls that I liked and he had a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And I saw that, I saw that. And I was like, well, if I had that cigarette and a beer, I could talk to those girls. So he looked- that night, I, that night, that night I took a, I stole a Marlboro red from my cousin and I went into my basement and I smoked it in the bathroom. I threw up, I got sick and, uh, I ratted myself out. I told my mother I smoked, but I never do it again. And like a week later, I was hiding packs of cigarettes in my mailbox. You know, and then uh, isn't that weird? The things we do—you get sick, really, really sick from trying something, and you think, "Oh, I'm never going to do that again." And two days later, you do it. You're doing it again, yeah. It's crazy. With that, I do it. But you know, my mother makes fun of me. I'm 46 years old now. I haven't had a lamb chop since I'm like five. Because one time I was sick and I ate a lamb chop and I had grown up. I never ate a lamb chop again. But, you know, all this other stuff. I had that with all this, <laughs> Yeah. All the insanity that it put me through when I just kept going back to it. 
You know? nice. So, uh, yeah, so I start drinking and, uh, you know, I always say my life didn't get out of control until much later when the drugs came in. But I think a month after I started drinking, I quit my hockey team because I didn't want to be bothered. You know, all I wanted to do was hang out in the schoolyard and hang out with these guys and drink, you know, and hang out with the girls and have fun. And that's what I did. You know, um, lucky enough that it was my senior year. So my grades kind of were already in. The college applications were already in. And I did very well. And I wound up getting a scholarship to college. And I went to Patient University in Pleasantville, New York, which was in Westchester. It's about 45 minutes north of New York City. So I was far enough away from home that I could live up there, but I was close enough that, you know, my mother could still do my laundry every, every month and <laughs> send me money and bring me food. Mm-hmm. So I wound up, I wound up moving up there and I, I moved into a room with two guys that I went to high school with. And I always say like when the door shut, you know, all our parents came up there that first night when the door shut and they left, that was it. You know, it was uh, for the next six years, five, six years. It was just, a, you know, a party every day, every night. Um, you know, my first semester in college, I almost failed out. I think you're frozen. Can't see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, no you're good. My you're side, good. it didn't. Okay. Um, yeah, so I never failed a class in my life in my first semester in college. Yeah, I pledged a fraternity and I drank every night and I never slept and I never went to class. I wound up failing four out of five classes. I I did something in one of the dorms that I almost got thrown off, thrown out of school for destruction of property. And I was put on academic probation my first semester in college. And um, I lost my scholarship. And here I am, you know, alcoholic, not knowing it yet. And what do I do, you know? I figured a way out of it. You know, I wrote a letter to the school saying that my parents got divorced and I, my mother can't afford it and please give me another chance. And they did, you know, I talked to the right people and they said, if you come back next semester and raise your grades, if you get a 3.0 just in the next semester, you know, we'll give you a grant that subsidizes what you lost with the scholarship. And that's what I did. I went back the next semester, you know, I still drank, but I was, school always came kind of natural to me. So I was able to do kind of the bare minimum and do well enough to get my grades to the point that they needed to be. And I got my grant and I was able to stay in school. Came home that summer, you know, party with my friends, drank, uh, smoked pot. I went back up there and that was the, basically the same thing for the next four years of college, five years I was in college. You know, so, I would mess up one yeah. semester. Hmm? So let me ask you this. When you were yes. home, in between, you know, in the summer, in between semesters, you were doing that stuff at home too? Yes. And yeah, every night, um, every night. I don't know if she knew the extent of it. You know, she knew I was out hanging out with my friends. I think a big part of it was that my mother, I think she felt guilty about the divorce. And I think she didn't want to push me. And she just kind of wanted to, you know, figured that I was doing this stuff to to act out and it would pass, you know, and my aunt, who was a very, my aunt was like my second mother and, you know, two sisters, very, very much alike, but also very different. You know, my aunt was a lot more street smart and uh, so rational with me. Going on more? She did, 
And, but she would just always tell my mother, you know, he's just a kid, you know, he's just a kid. This is what they do. He's, and her husband died at 43 years old of alcoholism. You know, his esophagus, esophagus exploded. So my aunt looked at me and said, well, he's not like that. This will pass, you know, because they just all thought that eventually it would just pass. You know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I do these podcasts is because I I don't, I, I live through watching parents set it aside or make excuses for it, you know, or a mother, especially a mother just wanting to save her child. So she would do anything. She, you know, she didn't want to see him on the street, you know, so if they, yeah. if, if they called and they were out of money and out of drugs and whatever, the moms go running to save their child. And I'm not by any means putting them down for that. Um, I've been there myself. The only difference is, well, my daughter, the first time she, she got drunk, drunk and got in a car accident and took off. And I was in another state working, but I got the phone call because I guess she went back home to the house and she, so she was a hit and run. DUI. Okay. She put the car in the garage, shut the garage and went inside the house. Well, the, um, yeah, the transmission fluid, like it, it ran all the way back to the house. To the house. They followed they tracked her. The home. Oh my God. They tracked her by that. But I get this, you know, phone call then from our city police and the uh, officer was really nice, but he said to me, um, so, you know, this is what she's been arrested for. And at the time, um, I lived in a smaller town and the jail there did not have a, a place for women. It was, you know, just men. And so he said, we're going to have to send her over to Cook County. Um, and he said, you don't want her there. I promise you, she's not that kind of kid. And and I said, um, the last thing I said to her before she went to this wedding and I knew there was going to be drinking was number one, don't drive. Number two, if you need money, whatever, you know, to get a cab, get an Uber, whatever it is, just call me. I'll pay them, give them credit card number, whatever. Just don't drive. And she's like, oh, we already got a designated driver, you know, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, if you get in trouble, I'm telling you. I'm not, I'm not going to pick you up. I'm not going to get you out. And so here, here is the officer telling me as soon as soon as he made the phone call and he said, you know, this is, this is what's happened, but you know, you want to bail her out. And I said, no, I'm not bailing her out. She needs to learn. She could have killed somebody. She could have killed herself. And he's like, ma'am, I'm telling you that if it was my daughter, I would be getting her out. You don't want her to go to the county prison. And I said, of course I don't, but I didn't do that. She did. And how is she going to learn if I just pay her way out? I'm going to tell you what, that sounds like I made it easy. I bawled all night long, all night long. I couldn't sleep, nothing. But I had learned at an early age with my dad that the only way to handle something like that is to not give in. 
Um, but guess what? Grandma, my mom, who took care of my brother all the time, she went and got her and bailed her out. So she had to go through it two more times before she finally got help. But every time she called me and I said, I don't know why you call me. You already know what I'm going to do. It's no, it's, it's no. And it's, you know, I know she, she was mad at me and probably didn't like me a bit, but I wanted her to be safe and I wanted other people to be safe. It's hard. I can imagine. I, I can't imagine how hard that must be. Oh my gosh. Especially when I put my dad in, my dad yelled at me. I mean, he was drunk. Okay. But when you're on the other side, you're not drunk. Okay. I'm, I'm not drunk. He's yelling at me. You are no longer my daughter. I hate you. And, and I'm trying to make this good choice for him. So he gets sober. You know, uh, I, my choice was he could go to jail for the night, but then we're going to let him out and he has no place to go to. So he'll be on the streets or you can put him at that time. You could do that. So you you could put him in a, in a place where he could help for his alcohol, or you can take him with you. But I was in college. I couldn't take him with me. So I said, well, I want him to get help. He was, they had him immediately. They were, cause he was very dehydrated. So they were putting stuff in him and stuff. He, he might know by no means was he sober, but he knew, he knew what I said. He, he knew what I said for them to do with him. And he immediately said, I will never forgive you. I hate you. You're no longer my daughter. That hurt bad. Yeah, I can imagine. So I've been on that other side of it. And that hurt bad that my daughter thought that I didn't love her. Grandma loved her. I didn't because I left her in there. But that's not how it is today. No, it's not. Yeah, I'm sure your daughter looks back on that and probably thanks you for it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But that doesn't change it at the time. No, I know. And again, I can't imagine. I'm not a parent. I can't imagine. I have two nephews that I'm very close with and they're very young. So, but I can't imagine that. I can't imagine having to make that decision. And I know how hard it must be. And I, you know, people call me for advice and I tell people, you know, that I'm, I would never tell anybody what to do, but I suggest. Right. And even when I suggest it, you know, I, it's hard for me to suggest that because, you know, nobody did that to me. You know, my mother didn't do that to me, you know, Maybe if she did, it would have been different, but, you know, so for me to say that to somebody else, but I know that when I was out there, what I was doing to her was just manipulating to her and everybody else that helped me. So I know what people are doing to their family members. Mm-hmm. So when I make those suggestions, as hard as it is to hear, I'm, I'm speaking from the addict's point of view, knowing what they're doing, you know? So, so then during the time that you were, in between semesters mm-hmm. is, that, is that did the drugs start then or were they in no the, the i mean i smoked pot here and there um i did ecstasy maybe once or twice but nothing it was all alcohol for until i was about 23 years old okay um, and what changed then so fast forward um 
21 years old. My father passes away, you know, um, was that? And I like to tell, I like to tell this story because, um, it's very important to show the type of person that my mother is. Um, when I was 20, I was coming home for Christmas Eve and my cousin came and picked me up. And when we're in the car, he tells me that my father's coming over for Christmas, for Christmas Eve. Okay. And I had to talk to my father in, in a few years at this point. Okay. I said, why, why is he coming for Christmas Eve? It's like your mother felt bad for him, so he's coming over. Because what happened to my father is that he burnt every bridge he had and nobody wanted him around. He became homeless, you know, and he was very sick. He had diabetes, so he started to get parts of his body amputated. And he was only, he died when he was 61, but at this point he was 60, he was a very old 60. You know, he was a shell of the person that I knew, you know, and um, so I come home and it's very awkward. You know, my father, this man who I haven't seen in God knows how long, and I'm very resentful towards, is in my house. And um, the one thing he did say to me, you know, he whispered in my ear, it's the one thing I listened to and the one thing I heard. And he said, Tommy, I'm sorry for the things I did. Don't do the things I did. He goes, look where it got me. Well, so, at least he gave you that. Yeah. yeah. But looking back on that now, I appreciate that. And I have long forgiven him. But then as a 19, 20-year-old kid, I didn't want to hear that. Sure. And it went in one ear and out the other. And about a year later in July, um, by this time, I was living up there at school full time. I went to school during the year. And then on the summers, I would live on campus and just I would get a job on campus and live there. So I get a call. It's July 15th, 1997. And my father had passed away. You know, this homeless shelter slash old age home that he was living in. They found him face down in his room. He had died of congestive heart failure and he died by himself, you know, with nobody. And so did my dad. Yeah. And the, the sick thing is he was still doing the same things. Like we found untaxed cigarettes in his room. We found betting slips, you know, pads with people that I had loaned money to, you know, he. So he never got to even. He never now. Life without him. And no, and, but he died alone and he wasn't happy. And again, you know, I didn't, not that I didn't care at the time, but in my eyes, he deserved what he got, you know, and I didn't shed a tear until I was at the wake and one of his old friends came in and told me, and he had say he was the one guy that stayed in contact with him. And uh, he just told me how much, how much your father loved you, how much he was, how proud he was of you. Always talked about you going to school and you were going to do such big things that made me cry because that brought me back. That part right there is why I think it's so important for us to get this stuff out there because you, you could have had anybody stepped in, not went as far as you did and not have, that resentment also because you would have understood we don't okay so I understand I understand what people are doing when they're addicted and I know I know they have a choice to begin with to begin with to take whatever they're taking before they become addicted to it 
once they're addicted, it's not easy to just drop it just like that. And that's not giving them an out. Okay. But I know it's more difficult once, once they actually get addicted and no, and now that's not them talking anymore. It's the addiction talking. And we, so we, I just feel like we need to really get the education out there. So first of all, parents can help at a younger age. And then us as parents know what the heck's going on. We can share that to other parents um, and to, to people that are on drugs, maybe, you know, maybe hopefully we can save one of them that they can recognize some of these. I don't, I don't know what your feelings on that. Like, don't you feel like you have to like go get hit bottom before you make that decision on your own? I, uh, I actually posted this on my Instagram the other day. Um, rock bottom is a very tricky concept for me, a very tricky word for me because I've hit rock bottom, you know, quote unquote rock bottom 50 times. There was always another bottom, you know, and it got to the point that, the last bottom would be the ceiling that I was trying to achieve again. So I think we as a society, me, any of I think we, we fall into the trap of saying, well, he's got to hit rock bottom. She's got to hit rock bottom. I don't think that's the case. You know, I don't think that somebody needs to hit rock bottom before you step in and try to help them. They may, listen, you may step in, you may help them, they may go and hit, they might die. You know, that's the sad truth of it. That being said, that shouldn't prevent us from trying, you know. And so many people in the course of my life tried to help me. And in one ear, out the other, they didn't listen to any of them, did what I did anyway. Well, but see, when I look back on it. has to get to that point where they're ready. Yeah, that's the thing. People do have to be ready. So I don't have to wait for, you know, Joe Blow to hit rock bottom. I don't have to wait till he crashes his car through a building and kills four people and goes to prison before I step in to help him. That being said, if I step in to help him, will he do the same thing? Possibly. But will I say something to him that might help him? Yeah, it might help him before he has to go through and crash the car and kill four people. So... So we need to start helping them before they, before, before they hit rock bottom, before they even started, you know? Um, So stop with the turning the head the other way. Yeah. Um, It's yeah. And I, listen, I, I go to 12 step meetings. I, I grew up in a very, you know, don't share anything kind of neighborhood and family. That's not how I am anymore. You know, and I, my, Thoughts have evolved. I've evolved and I see too much. You know, I see too many people struggling with this and too many people just left out there to say, oh, well, he's, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do anyway. So let's just let him do that. When he's ready, he'll come. Yes. When he's ready, he will. But that doesn't mean you can't step in and try. If you step in and try 40 times and he doesn't listen, absolutely. You know, he's going to do what he's going to do. Right. So don't you think but I don't, that you don't even, I mean, you get to a point where you're so low and your self-esteem is like zero and all those things until you take that drug that makes you feel like it's not low, but that's only for a short time. And then you come down 
and then you feel worse and then you feel so bad that you got to take some more so that you feel better because that emotional uh-huh. pain is so bad and physical pain depending on your drug of choice but don't you think that if somebody in the middle of all that said hey I really care about you let's talk that that would be better than just going oh well he's probably not ready or she's probably not ready so let's just not say anything absolutely absolutely you know again um plenty of people did it for me I wasn't ready to hear it until I was but absolutely I I don't think we should wait I think that we should step in when we see a problem arising. And again, that, that, that's not to say that we should step in and blow up our own lives and, mm-hmm. and enable do that. But, you know, for me to go in and share my experience and what I went through and how I got out of it to somebody who's going through it, you never know what you say to somebody is going to change their life. You know, I speak well, in a treatment center. How about if you tell the audience, what's the difference between enabling and just talking to somebody about what's going on and making suggestions? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I said this to somebody the other day. They're going through a problem with a family member. And, you know, they have paid for $45,000 rehabs and an $800,000 sober house and give them money and going and picking them up in, in they're just doing the same thing over and over again. That's enabling somebody, you know, to step in and talk to somebody. I have boundaries, you know, I will help anybody. Anybody calls me from, uh, if I don't know you, if I know you, if I, you know, if I'm in a treatment center and I give you my number and you call me, I will help anybody that needs it. But there's boundaries to that. You know, I will not ever give anybody money. You know, I won't let anybody stay in my house. Um, you know, there's got to be boundaries. Yes, I could give my experience. I could give my hope. I could give my story and how I did it. But I can't live your life for you. You know, I'm not going to sit there and tell you 50 times to do something and 50 times to do the other thing. And I keep feeding you and feeding you and feeding because that's going to kill you. I could offer my advice. I could offer my help. But there's got to be boundaries. I love the boundaries and I use the boundaries, but what's really important to tell people is to make sure you stick to those boundaries. There's so many people yeah. give the boundaries. And that's the hardest part. You know? It is. It's the hardest part. Okay. So talk to me about getting into the harder drugs. And okay, so, um, at 23 years old. So my father dies when I'm 21. Um, I used to hang out in this Irish bar in Pleasantville, New York called Foley's Club Lounge. And it became like my second home. You know, I was there so much. The guy who owned it, he gave me a job there. Um, he was a great guy. He was, uh, he was probably in his late 30s when he had hired me and I looked up to him. And I was always looking for that, that father figure type person in my life. You know, I look back on that. I was lacking that. You mean so I always grabbed it died or after your dad mom got divorced? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After that. So I was always looking for somebody, you know, somebody to look up to. So and there were plenty of those people in my life. And this man was one of them. So he gives me a job at the bar. And uh, but now, you know, I drink for free. I'm eating for free. And uh, 
you know, I'm hanging out with all these people and people are gambling. You know, there were people in the early 20s, college kids, people are gambling. And a friend of mine in Brooklyn finds out like what I'm doing up there and hanging out. And he was a bookie. You know, he was uh, he worked for some connected guys in Brooklyn. And he called me up one day and asked me if I wanted to do it for him. Like if I wanted to take the guys that I was that I knew gambled and bring them from whoever they were using to him. And he would give me a percentage. And I, I say in the book, you know, this is what my father did, you know, and my father said to me, don't do the things I did. Mm-hmm. And in one breath, I said, yeah, I, of course, of course, I'll do that. And I started doing that. So now I started doing that. I'm drinking every day and night. The girl I was with at the time, you know, she didn't want any part of that. So she leaves me. And now I start hanging out with people that I know, but I'm not comfortable with. And they're going out into the city and they're taking ecstasy. So one night they came back to the bar. They asked me if I wanted any. I Originally I said no. And then I was like, you know what, let me try it. And I took one pill that night at about 10 o'clock. And by four o'clock in the morning, I had taken like seven more. Because I love the way it made me feel. I have never, ever talked to anybody that's taken ecstasy. So I don't know. How does it make you feel? I mean, the name, the name kind of says it all. Um, It just makes you feel really good. Uh, It basically releases all the serotonin in your brain at once. And um, it just makes you feel really good. Uh, Really loving. Uh, Cocaine did something different for me. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, every drug has a different feeling and every, every drug hits people differently. So for me, ecstasy was the first, um, I take it that night and then I took it every day for like six months straight. And um, I had gotten a job. I, I tried to do the right thing. I said, I got to do the right thing. I have to get a job. I'm a bartender and a bookie, you know, so I have to get a job. So I get a job at some, I don't even remember what it was, like a customer service HVAC company. And I'm getting high every night. I'm drinking every night. And one day I'm driving to work. I'm on I-95 because it was in Connecticut. And I fell asleep at the wheel and I was in traffic. So I wasn't going like fast. So I kind of dozed off and I came to, and I was past my exit. So I just turned the car around. And I went home. I never went back to work and I got high. And that's kind of like the things that I would do. I just, nothing mattered to me, but you know, doing what I wanted. So, so that I continued was to work at this when you like woke up, like, were you going off the road or anything? No, I was sitting in traffic. I, I guess I just moved up a couple of feet at a time and I was like dozing in and out. Okay. And um, by the time I woke, like by the time I really came to, I was past my exit. Instead of going to work because I was late, I said, ah, I'll just go home. And I left my job. And I made up this whole story why I got fired. Meanwhile, two guys that I, two guys I knew worked with me. They knew why I got fired. Anyway, so I'm doing that for about six months. And one night I go to the guy that I'm getting the ecstasy from and he doesn't have any ecstasy. He has, hands me a tinfoil packet. And um, I had been drinking all day and I asked him what it was. And he said it was cocaine. And like back then, that was a line I didn't want to cross. Like cocaine to me, and it is a hard drug. It's something I didn't want to do. It's something I never imagined myself doing. But I grabbed the foil packet from him, you know, and I went in the bathroom and I, put the line on the, the toilet tank and I did it. And I just, I fell in love with it right then and there. 
it sobered me up. Uh, it gave me a rush of energy that I really never felt before. It made my whole face numb in the back of my throat. And um, I, I rarely went a day for the rest of my time drinking without cocaine. You know, if, it, if I didn't have it, it was because I couldn't get it or I didn't have any money. But if I was drinking, I was doing coke and I was drinking every day. So that's what I was saying is like, that's what I, everybody that I'm talking to, cocaine just made them feel like super person. They had these superpowers and they never felt so good in their life and blah, blah, blah. But then they could yeah, but and Very so- different than ecstasy. Um, so that's why I was at like the difference. I would, I would never do cocaine. I would never wake up in the morning and say, I got to go get some cocaine. It was always wake up in the morning, do whatever, go out. As soon as I had a few drinks in me, I say it. I talk about it a lot in the book. It's like a bell went off in my head. And as soon as I had a certain amount of alcohol in me, my body craved the cocaine. Okay. And that's when I would do it. And then it kind of, when you mix cocaine and alcohol, it makes another substance in your body. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it basically creates another substance in your body. And I just love that mixture, you know, but coming down from cocaine and running out of cocaine is not fun. You know, Um, you're up all night or you're up for days at a time and, um, you know, coming down from it sucks and it's a very expensive habit, you know? And uh, so I start selling, well, I start attempting to sell cocaine and ecstasy to support my habit um, along with the bookmaking and, you know, the bartending. And I started stealing money, you know, from the register in order to support my my habits, you know, because the money just wasn't enough. You know, I was gambling, so all the money I was making from that was just going back to the guy. I would buy a certain amount of drugs to sell and make money, and then I'd wind up just trying to break even. And then by the end of the week, I wound up owing the guy more money than I brought in, and um, it just became a disaster, you know. And people started to notice. Um, and I just burnt a lot of bridges up there. You know, that man that owned that bar, he treated me very well. Anytime I needed money, I could ask him and he would give it to me. And then I would steal money from his register to pay him back. You know, so that's the that's the kind of life I started to lead. And things got heavy up there for me. So I decided I was pretty much told that I should leave because the police were looking into me for something that I wasn't doing. They thought I was selling pot to high school kids, which I wasn't doing. But a lot of these guys used to drink in the bar. So they knew me and they liked me and they knew what I was doing. So they said, listen, you might not be doing this, but you're doing this, this and this. So if they look into you, eventually they're going to find this stuff. So before that happens, why don't you just, you know, get out of here for your own good. So that's what I did. You know, I called my family and I moved back to Brooklyn. And I had interned in a Wall Street firm that my cousin worked at from 15 to 21. I worked there in the summers. I worked there in my off time. And they had a spot open in the accounting department for somebody with a degree that I had. And they knew me. So, you know, the interview was a formality. I went down into the interview. I got the job. And I moved back to Brooklyn in Memorial Day weekend of 2000. And I started that job the next day. And I, in my head, I said, all right, you know, I got a little out of control. 
It was the hard drugs. It was the cocaine. It was the ecstasy. As long as I don't do that, I'll be okay. You know, I could drink, I could smoke pot and I can maintain a lifestyle that, you know, wouldn't be as dangerous as it was up there. And I had every, I had every intention of doing that. And, uh, I'm sorry, you had a question. I wanted you to know that I wasn't ignoring you, but I was looking up what that's called when you mix alcohol and cocaine. Mm-hmm. And it says, if I pronounce it correctly, um, cocaine. Yes. Yeah. So it does. It produces a, a whole nother substance in your body. Yeah, it says it has significant effects of its own when you mix it yeah. together. And, and that's what I loved. I didn't love cocaine by itself. I loved it mixed with alcohol. And a lot of people said, I know I use the line all the time, like cocaine and alcohol is like peanut butter and jelly, you know. So did you have... It just goes hand in hand. Liberty? And once I started doing it, no, no. Grace of God, I'm, I'm healthy as a horse. That is good because that's one of the things that they're talking about that it that it has a big toll on the liver. Yeah, um, yeah, oh. and as my story gets on, a lot of the other things I did, you know, had a a bigger toll on the liver. So again, grace of God, I'm healthy. Um, so I, I moved back to Brooklyn, and about two weeks after I moved back, you know, that bell goes off in my head, and I ask around, and I'm back to doing cocaine two weeks later. And now I'm starting to physically, because I didn't have to wake up in the morning and go to work when I lived up there. I didn't really have to answer to anybody. I didn't have to be responsible. So I could kind of get away with being out of it or, you know, smelling like alcohol. I was always drunk. I always had something in my system. Now I have to get up for work. I have to go into an office. I have to talk to people. I have to be responsible. So now I'm waking up in the morning and I'm shaking. And my heart's pounding and I'm sweating and I'm on a train and, and I can't breathe and, I, and I'm throwing up and I don't know what's wrong with me. I think I'm dying. So I, I leave, yeah, I leave work and, you know, I go to the emergency room and there's nothing wrong with me. Happens again a few days later. I leave work. I go to the emergency room. Nothing wrong with me. So didn't put two and two together. Going to work like a month later happens again. I come home and my aunt looks at me and she, her mother's name was Loretta. And I walked in the house and she looked at me and she said, Thomas, you look like Loretta did right before she dropped dead. And I said, wow, because your skin is gray. What's wrong with you? I said, aunt, I don't know. I don't know, but I feel like I'm dying. So I go down to my mother worked for doctors her whole life. One of them I, I was very friendly with and he read the book. He, I still talk to him today. He's a great, great man. And, um, you know, I go down to see him and he's asking me all these questions and he's like, what's wrong, Tommy? And I'm like, I'm dying, doctor. And he just looked at me and he said a, a few choice words. He said, you're not dying. You're 25 years old. You're fine. What's wrong? He was like, do you drink? I was like, no, doc. You know, I have a few beers here and there with my friends. He's like, do you do any drugs? I said, no, not at all takes my vitals, asks me some questions. He said, listen, you've been through a lot, you know, with your father and school and the job. And he said, I'm going to give you something to take the edge off. He oh, said, no. when you feel like this, he said, when you feel like this, take one of these pills and you'll feel better. So he prescribed me Ativan at first. Oh my gosh. Okay. 
So I take these pills home and I'm like, I'm not going to take these pills. Cause I think they're like psych medications. I was like, I'm not taking these. I, I don't need to get hooked on. That's my, I'm like, I don't need to get hooked on drugs. Meanwhile, <laughs> I'm out there doing what I'm doing. So I take these pills home and a couple of days later, I go out all night, wake up the next day, shaking, sweating, all the same feelings. I said, let me try one of these pills. I take one and 20 minutes later, I feel great. I feel great. I go to work, you know, and time goes on. And then he moved me from Ativan to Clonopin. And again, I found my solution. You know, I can now I can do what I wanted. And when I woke up and I felt like this. I'm sorry. From what I understand, Ativan is very addicting and a lot stronger than clonopin and clonopin is supposed to not be addicting uh, they're all they're all pretty addicting i mean i had a i had a lot of experience later on in life with with those drugs uh, abusing those drugs but this i really wasn't abusing those i was taking them for what i in my head thought was anxiety because that's what i really thought it was i'm not in my head, I'm not thinking that I'm in alcohol withdrawal and cocaine induced, you know, paranoia. I think that is what the doctor told me. I have an anxiety disorder. So if I take these pills, I'll be okay. Not thinking that maybe if I stop drinking all night long and, you know, snorting $300 worth of cocaine a night, that that would help. But no, I found my solution because I can do what I wanted and I can take this pill and go to work and function. But you can only function for so long doing that. And fast forward, February of 2002, I lose that job. Long story, it's in the book. Uh, <laughs> lose that job, lose that job, and uh, I go to my mother and my aunt, and I said, "Listen, I need help. You know, I uh, I'm doing way too much cocaine, and I can't stop." And uh, I wrote them a letter verbatim that my mother saved and gave me like five years ago and the letter is actually in the book too I write word for word what I wrote them so they call the same doctor and he says all right Tommy we're going to get you in a program come in and meet me uh whatever it was a week later and um for that next week I just drank and just took pills and did coke every night I wake up the morning that I'm going to this place. I get in the car. I took a handful of Clonopin. And I'm sleeping in the back seat. Pull up. I go in through the emergency room. They interview me. About three or four hours later, you know, they give me IVs and whatever. About three or four hours later, they take me upstairs. And the elevator opens. And I walk in. And it's this big steel door. And the door closes behind me. And now, like, at that time, I didn't know what rehab was. The only rehab I saw was on television. You know, uh, I was a big Beverly Hills 90210 fan back in the day. And, you know, yeah. So I think I'm going to, like, you know, this Malibu-looking trees and pools and all this nice stuff. That is not what this was. And it wasn't rehab. You know, they uh, the doctor comes in, he looks at me. Excuse me? Was it a mental floor? Yes, yes. That's what so, uh, yeah, so I, uh, you know, the doctor comes up and he looks at me and says, Thomas, this is the psychiatric unit of this hospital. He goes, and you're going to be here with us for the next, you know, 10 days, 10 days to two weeks, 10 to 14 days. So right then and there, I, I you know, I start turning on the waterworks. My aunt and my mother are there. The doctor's there and I'm trying everything. 
to get out of this. I'm like, I don't belong here. I, I'm not staying here. I'm not crazy. Long story short, they leave. I get on the phone. I start calling all my friends. You got to come and get me out of here. They got me in a nut house. What am I doing here? I don't belong here. They all tell me, just do what you got to do and stay there. So I apparently was the only one that thought that I didn't belong where I was. And uh, so I gave up and I went to my room and I was crying, you know, because how did my life get here? You know, 26 years old, I'm in a psych ward. You know, what happened? And there's a knock on the door and it's a nurse. And she said, there's an AA meeting down the hallway if you'd like to go. And I said, I'm not here for alcohol, man. I'm here for cocaine. You know, I don't think I need to go to that because I still didn't think I had a problem drinking. You know, I thought everything was from the drugs and not putting two and two together that that the alcohol started at all. So uh, she looked at me. She said, listen, you, you really have nothing better to do. She goes, you look like you're in, you're in bad shape. She said, so why don't you just go down the hall and listen to what they have to say? I said, OK. And I went down the hall and I, and I sat down and I listened. And the guy that spoke, he was uh, he was an older gentleman. And, uh, you know, I remember him to this day. I don't remember his name. I do remember what he looked like. And I do remember his story. And I share his story every time I speak. And it's in the book. <laughs> he told a story. He told a story about say that book. <laughs> yeah. He told a story about um, he used to drive. He lived in Staten Island, New York, and he used to drive over the Verrazano Bridge, which connects Staten Island and Brooklyn. And he used to go to East New York to buy crack. And he would spend all his money on the crack and he would have to collect cans in order to pay the toll to get back over the bridge back to Staten Island. And at 26 years old, as soon as he said that, I stopped listening. You know, I started comparing myself to him. And I said, this guy's 50 years old. He's smoking crack. He's collecting cans. I'm 26. I have a college degree. I did a little too much cocaine. That will never be me. You know, and, um, and I said as much to him after the meeting and and he under you know he looked at me and he didn't yell at me he just looked at me and he said listen kid if you keep doing the things you, if you keep thinking the way you're thinking you're going to keep doing the things you're doing mm-hmm. and sooner or later your story will be mine whether you like it or not and I said okay and I shook his hands and I thanked him and I went back to my he gave me a big book I went back to my room I put the book in my bag never opened it for years um told them everything they wanted to hear for the next 10 days. And I was released from that place on a Monday morning. My aunt came and picked me up. I walked out of that place. I walked home. I went in my house. I looked in the mirror and it was the first time in 10 years that I hadn't had anything in my system for more than a day, let alone 10 days. Mm -hmm. I felt good physically. I looked good. I was rested, but I didn't know how to live my life. And I didn't deal with any of the underlying issues that was still there. So the first thing I did was went in my top drawer and I had a Tylenol with codeine in there. I took that. I called my friend and eight hours after being released from a psych unit for alcohol and drug use, I was drinking 40s, watching wrestling with my friend in his house. Four days later, I was at a house in Hunter Mountain, New York. Uh, It's like a ski town that everybody goes to. It's like the Hamptons of the winter. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm up there. I'm in the bathroom. I'm, I'm sniffing cocaine. About two months later, I uh, I started to take Percocets because I didn't want people to know I was drinking. So instead of drinking when I went out, I would take some Percocet from my aunt and I would take those and just drink club soda when I was out. So people would think I was sober, but I really wasn't. So just does that 
Percocet give you the same feeling that alcohol does? Percocet, uh, Perc- Percocet opiates is, uh, is the feeling I was looking for my whole life. You know, it, uh, but, but what I'm asking, I f- does alcohol give that same feeling to you? No, it's a different feeling. Um, very different feeling, much quicker. Um, the best way I could describe it is like being wrapped in, somebody had said this to me, and I, I never realized it until they said it to me. It's like being wrapped in a warm blanket in the most comfortable space you've ever been in your life. Yeah, I, it's funny, as I said that, as you were putting a blanket on, yeah, it's crazy. But, I was- but that's, exactly, that's exactly what it's like, you know, the feeling. You know, I could close my eyes and feel the feeling now because that's how much it, that, that recall in my brain. Um, so I started taking those and I would take one and go out and be fine all night, you know, then one, then two and three. And then I was like, like other drugs, you, yeah, eventually didn't uh, work anymore. So yeah, no, yeah. Keep taking more. So now, but now I, I realized that when you drink on top of it, it just enhances the effect. So now I'm drinking on top of that. And then when I have the bell goes off, I start with the cocaine. So now I'm drinking, taking Percocets, sniff of cocaine. And um, my aunt was very sick. You know, she had terminal cancer for years. Uh, you know, she beat it multiple times. Eventually she succumbed, she succumbed to it. Um, she had multiple surgeries on all different parts of her body. And this was when OxyContin, OxyContin was being widely prescribed. Um, I always saw them in her house. I didn't know what they were. Somebody had told me about them when I was in the psych unit. And one night I took a bunch and I put them in my drawer downstairs. And one night it was in my pocket. I was out. I was having a good time. You had them in the house so you could just get them like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who? Yep, that's how it started. My but aunt. My aunt. Yeah. Who was taking it for her? Was it for her cancer? Like the yeah, pain? cancer, man. Yeah, she was in pain. She had multiple shirt surgeries on her shoulder, her back. She was taking them for the right reasons. You know, she would take and she one every pain. six hours as prescribed, you know, the Oxycontin right. twice a day. You know, she would get 180 a month and there would be 90 left at the end of the month. And she, so at, oh, at she first, no, she, yeah, because she had so many extras, she didn't really realize when I was only taking a few, okay. you know, you could get away with that. Okay. So I, I grabbed the Oxycontin and they were 80 milligrams. And um, I remember being out and I had one in my pocket and I said, I can't take 80. I'm going to break it in half. I'll take 40. Oxycontin had a time release on it. So when you broke it, everything gets released at once. So I was out drinking all day. I put this 40 milligrams of Oxycontin in my mouth. I drink it with the beer. 20 minutes later, I get this rush that I never got before. And I absolutely, from that day, I said, I never want to feel any other way, but that way again. So it was a good. And yes. Yes. Um, I, I got violently sick, um, violently sick that night, uh, broke out itching everywhere. If that makes any sense. Um, it, it's crazy. And, you know, the next day I woke up, I said, I can't do that again. That was, that was too much. Can't do that again. So a month later, I said, you know what? It was because I broke it in half. I'm going to take the whole one this time. 
So instead of taking the 40, I took the 80. And basically all it was is it's an 80 milligram time release. It's supposed to be an 80 milligram time release over 12 hours. Okay. But what happened was people would stop breaking it and it became the most widely abused drug ever, pretty much. I think they just settled another lawsuit for billions of dollars. Um, so long story short, long story short, that 80 milligram Oxycontin that day turns into about 800 milligram a day habit on top of alcohol, on top of cocaine. Um, and my life just went down the toilet. And three years after listening to that man's story and that, and that psych unit and him telling me, if you keep thinking the way you're thinking, you're going to keep doing the things you're doing sooner or later, your story will be mine. I was collecting cans for crack money. You know, my story became that guy's three years later. You know, and um, that's what O-X-Y-C-O-N-T-I-N. So how many milligrams? I was up to, uh, I was up to about 800 milligrams a day. 800? Yeah. Yeah. I would chew them, I would sniff them, I would smoke them, I would swallow them, you know, all depending on how quick I needed the, how quick I needed it to hit me, um, the condition I was in, the amount I had left. And again, I didn't know what these pills were, you know. I knew how they made me feel. I knew I shouldn't be taking them like this, but I didn't know the extent of which I was physically dependent on them until I didn't have them. And, uh, you know, one night my whole family was at my house, so I couldn't get upstairs to get any. So I said, I'll just wait till tomorrow, you know, and I'll get, I'll get more. And that next day I woke up and I was so violently sick, you know, cramping up, growing up, uh, diarrhea, everything was disgusting, but I didn't know what it was. I just thought I was sick. You know, I blamed my aunt. I, I told my aunt that she gave me food poisoning. Um, and I was like that for like two days. I was just thinking the side effects of it and it's sweating, vomiting. Yeah, no, it's, it's brutal. Um, so I didn't know what this was. So I think I, I basically think I have food poisoning. My aunt thinks I have food poisoning. My mother thinks I have food poisoning. And I'm like, I'm going to use this to my advantage. I said, aunt, I said, my muscles are all cramped up from, you know, throwing up for the last three days. Can you give me a pill? Oh, no. So she gave it to me. So did you not and know I, that these side effects were from? No. Okay. No, I did. I so didn't. And I thought I had food poisoning. Food poisoning, the flu. Really? I just thought I was sick. Yeah. No, I just thought I was sick. I didn't know. I didn't know what dope sick was at the time. Okay. So she gives me a pill and I take it. About a half hour later, I feel fine. Hmm. So I'm like... I still didn't put two and two together. I was like, all right, it passed. You know, I ate whatever. About a month later, I run out again. And the same thing happens. And I take one and I feel better. And now I know. Now I know that if I don't have these pills, I'm going to be sick. Okay. And that's that started a, a tremendous downfall of me doing anything I could to get that. You know, stealing, robbing, uh, fraudulent activity. Yeah, I I worked in a bank. Oh, was one of them like writing your own prescriptions? Yes. Yep. 
I used to, I used to dress up in a suit. I, used to, I had a, a guy that lived down the block from me that I used to do some scams with. And uh, he had stolen a prescription pad from his doctor. And we had a deal. Like I would write the prescription, I would fill it and I'd give him half. I'd keep half. He'd do whatever he did with his. So, you know, I would go and write a prescription for 90. I would get 90. I would tell him I only got 60. I'd keep 60 myself. I'd give him 30. And I did that about four or five times a month, you know, and I would do one under my own insurance, not the smartest thing in the world. And then I would do four others, you know, paying cash. And uh, I did that for about a year. I did that for about a year on and off. How long ago was this? Oh, this was, wow. 2000, 2003. 2003 to that's right you probably couldn't get away with that nowadays it's a lot oh, a lot no, stricter no. now you have to in any kind of those you have to be drug tested every three months yeah get them well i i did get um i did get caught once i called in a prescription it was my aunt's cardiologist and oh yeah so my aunt took oxycontin and percocet so i see this you couldn't write a prescription for Oxycontin or Percocet because they're federal prescriptions. Hydrocodone Vicodin is, it's a, it was a schedule two at the time. So you could write a regular prescription for it. So I called a prescription for Vicodin. You know, I say I'm so-and-so calling from doctor, so-and-so's office. I call in the prescription for my aunt and I go to the pharmacy to pick up. I, I had like antibiotics in that. I think I had a tooth pulled or something. So I go to the pharmacy and I, I say, I'm here to pick up my antibiotics. I give my name. I said, my aunt's medication is also here. And they're like, what's your aunt's name? I tell them, they're like, oh, it's not ready yet. Come back. I'm like, all right. So I go back home and my mother and my aunt are livid, livid. They, my mother dragged me walking. It was about 12 blocks away from my house, walking, basically by my, by my ear, walks me into this pharmacy. Doesn't tell me what's going on. <laughs> I walk in the pharmacy, there's two, there's two police officers there, there's in uniform, there's two plainclothes police officers there, there's the pharmacist that I had seen, and I walk in, and they, they, the cop goes, it's this him, and the pharmacy looks at me, but I had seen this lady 20 minutes earlier, she looks at me dead in the eye, I don't know if she felt bad for me, I don't know if she really didn't recognize me again, but she said that's not him. Hmm. and uh and i walked away from that you know grace of god whatever but yeah i walked away from that and uh eventually the prescriptions run out eventually that guy doesn't want to deal with me anymore because i was just out of control and i tell the story all the time too i'm going to call him by his name in the book because i don't want to use his real name Mm -hmm. um so in the book his name is gino and Gino was like, he was an older guy in my neighborhood to the older guys, like the older guys looked up to him and he was crazy, nice guy, but just nuts and had a very bad crack addiction, crack, cocaine, free base, all the same thing. And um, he would run these garage sales. He would go out at night and collect stuff from garbage and then sell it the next day in his yard. And then every $50 he made, he would call the dealer up just get $50, $50. And he would just all day long, he would just smoke. And eventually he was the only guy in the neighborhood that would hang out with me. And I started doing these schemes with him. And I eventually started smoking crack with him. And, um, you know, 
eventually I, I had run out of every viable option to get painkillers and I was sick and he had gotten me heroin and I did it the first night. And again, I got sick and then I was sniffing about two bundles of heroin a day. Um, it's about a, a bundle is like a 10 baggies, 10 glass line baggies wrapped up in a, in a rubber band. And that's a bundle. And I was sniffing about two of those a day for about six or seven months. And eventually I went down to him and he just looked at me and he said, listen, he goes, you're out of control. man." he goes, I can't really deal with you anymore. Now I looked at this guy and I'm like, this is the guy that everybody said, don't become like this guy. And now this guy is telling me that he can't deal with me because I'm out of control. So it was kind of in that moment that I, I, there was no more fingers to point, you know, there was no more. There's no more, oh, I'm not him. I'm not as bad as him because I was the guy. You know, I was the guy that parents were looking at and I was saying, don't become like that guy. And, um, and it scared me. You know, it scared me and I was miserable, but I didn't know how to stop. And, um, you know, I had gone up, my aunt had a house in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. And I went up there to dry out. My cousin lived up there. And I was sitting in the bedroom and he had, a, he had won a shotgun in a raffle. And I sat in the bedroom and I grabbed the shotgun off the the wall and I put it under my chin. And I sat at the end of the bed and I prayed God, prayed to God for the strength to pull the trigger. You know, because I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to live how I was living anymore. And I didn't know how to stop. And, um, you know, that's the place it took me to. Um, You know what the rate is of suicides per hour? No, I don't. Five people commit suicide every hour. Said, you know, and I, you know, almost five people have already committed suicide. Yeah, you know, and I, uh, I used to not understand that, and I used to look down on it until I was in that place myself. And I don't, you know, the pain that you have to be in to end your own life, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that because I was in that pain. I wanted to end my own life. So when I hear people kill themselves and people like, oh, they're selfish can't say that you you don't know what's going on in that person's head for them to say that this is the only this is the better option than continuing you know it's uh, right I I have made that judgment myself but that's because I was never in that position yeah so I couldn't imagine it um however I was in pain and situations where I asked God to just please take me and be done with this. So apparently I didn't have the depression that, you know, enough to, mine was more of, it it was a physical pain that I had from like my cancer. And I just said, God, if I'm going to die, just take me because I can't take this pain anymore. So that wasn't the same as like, depressed and I know it wasn't because I've just talked to too many people that when that they did try to commit so I were at that point anyway um, and something stopped them so what stopped you I don't know uh I couldn't do it I I couldn't pull the trigger you know I didn't want to die but I didn't want to live the way I was living and I really couldn't stop it's it's a hard it's a horrible place 
for an alcoholic, a drug addict, uh, with any addiction, because everything that that alcohol and that drug did for me over the years, it made me alcohol at the beginning. It made me funny. It made me more social. It, you know, it enabled me to act a certain way. Uh, the pills made me feel like that warm blanket was wrapped around me. It made me feel safe. It made me feel at peace. Now, all that stuff is making me feel depressed, anxious. It's destroying my life. And I can't stop. So everything that it gave me, it takes away. But you can't live without it. So it's a hard place to be. And after that night, I still went home. And I went on for another almost three years. And uh, finally, I, I just couldn't take it anymore, you know, and I, uh, I just, I gave up. I couldn't take it anymore. I just come to the end of my rope. You know, we were talking about bottoms before. My bottom was never this, a lot of worse things happened to me over the time. I, I lost all my friends. All my friends didn't want to have anything to do with me anymore. I lost relationships. I lost respect, jobs. All that stuff didn't get me to stop all those so to speak bottoms this bottom was just like an emotional depletion like I just couldn't take it anymore I couldn't live the way I was living anymore and I just wanted to stop for real like I was ready we talked before we got on here about being ready I was ready I was ready to stop so I tell my mother my aunt had passed away by this time and uh, it was my mother and my cousin Stephanie and I called them down, I sat them in the living room and I just unloaded everything. And, you know, they just looked at me in a little bit of shock, you know, um, but they said, listen, if you're really serious, we'll do whatever we can, you know, for you. So the next day um, I laid low in my house. The day after that, I went to my first AA meeting. Um, I enrolled myself in an outpatient rehabilitation and uh didn't you have you know, to didn't you have like side effects from coming off of everything you were doing i leading up to that i had i kind of weaned myself off of everything so i kind of stopped drinking a few weeks before that the pills i stopped, i detoxed myself over everything not recommended very dangerous yeah um, but that's what i did i detoxed myself over everything I've and heard by the time I doing that, and that's it's supposed to be very dangerous. Yeah, it is. I, I remember I I walked into the outpatient in my intake, and um, my counselor was this. He was an Orthodox Jewish guy, very nice guy, and he's sitting across from me, and he goes, "How do you feel?" I said, "I feel great," because I really did. Like, because I knew that I was ready. I knew I was going to start to change my life. So I felt I felt good about that. He goes, put your hands up. And I put my hands up and they're like, they're shaking. He goes, you don't look good to me. I was like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I can't remember what he gave me. It was some like uh, anti-anxiety medication. It wasn't any like narcotic stuff to like calm the shakes down. Right. I took it for a few days. Didn't like the way it made me feel. I stopped taking it. But by that time, as time went on, you know, the shaking stopped and I started to feel normal again. Um, so I go to AA, I'm going to this outpatient. I wind up getting a job, a terrible job. It was working for this contract to cleaning out grease traps and restaurants. But I was so happy to be doing it and so proud to be doing it because I hadn't worked for years. You know, any job I had was for a very short period of time. I was unemployable. I contributed nothing to my family, nothing to society. 
So I got this job and I wound up accepting. I was 29 at this time. Okay. You know, so I'm still living in my mother's house. And um, so I get this job and I'm doing great. You know, I, I wind up doing good at the job. Um, days turn into weeks, into months. Uh, I celebrate my first year sobriety at March 12th, 2006. So March 12th, 2005, I got sober. Uh, Marshall 2006 I celebrated yeah and I quit that job the same day because the guy that owned it he was a, an addict himself and we had sent him away and while he was away I was running this business for him and when he came back he was just a, he was a maniac and you know one thing that they taught me in in AA and in these programs I've been through is if you're in a situation that you're not comfortable in that you feel is gonna draw you out then you have to leave that situation. And that's what I did. I had no plan. You know, I had no job, but I left that situation. And sure enough, uh, about two months later, I got called from the Department of Sanitation in New York City. And I got hired in August of 2006. And I'm still on that job today. Um, 16 years in, uh, in August and that job. I got promoted. Um, I'm on a list to get promoted again. Okay. So that was like a... That was a blessing. Like, um, I remember my best friend growing up had the, had the job. He's on the job 21 years, I think. And I used to make fun of him. I used to be like, are you crazy? You're picking up garbage for a living. What are you doing? You're better than that. Me, like, I think I'm a big Wall Street guy. And then years later, I remember being on a bus ride with him and saying, all I need is the job that you have and like a girl that you have and I can straighten my life out. And as you get older, you start to realize that, you know, a good salary, great benefits, an honest job. That's what you're looking for, you know, just to be responsible. And when that job came around, I, I, I was so happy and so proud to be on it. And I've worked that job every day since like that, just proud to be a part of it. And um, things were great. Things were great. And I, I was sober and everything was good. I moved out of my mother's house. I had the car. I meet the girl and, and life is great. So I but I stopped. If I can just interrupt you again while you take your drink. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you. Yeah, my throat was kind of dry. Yeah. Um, during all this time through the end of high school and through college, was sex involved too? Um, not an abuse of it, no. Okay. Um, I, had, I had a steady girlfriend throughout college. And then, you know, mm-hmm. we broke up. Put up with us. Yeah, I mean, again, you're in college and you're drinking every night. It's kind of like, okay, you're in college and you're drinking every night. She got out before. She got out before. No, no, no. That wasn't until after that was over. Okay. And then there was, you know, there were girls in between, but then it was always like one steady one. There was never, I was never an abuser of sex, a womanizer. You know, that really didn't play into it. As a matter of fact, um, at the height of my using, I would say between 20, 2002 and 2000, when I got sober, about a year into getting sober, I wasn't with anybody. I didn't have sex for seven, almost eight years because I just didn't want to. You know, I wanted to get high. And those those things, they do things to your body. You know, you don't have the, Desire. the drive. Mm-hmm. Stuff doesn't work right. So, uh, so yeah, I uh, so I get sober. And now it's three years in and I kind of rested on my laurels. You know, I thought I had it. 
And I stopped, I didn't stop doing everything, but I stopped doing it diligently. Mm-hmm. And I, I was only doing enough. I, I would show up at meetings. I would hang out with my friends. I would go home. Um, I wouldn't share what I was going through. I wouldn't talk about anything. I wouldn't give back. You know, I wasn't doing service, which is a huge part of, of AA and NA. It's doing I'm service, you know. They weren't talking to you about that. Excuse me? I'm surprised they weren't talking to you about that. Because you weren't really working the program. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. And people did talk to me about it. And I'd say, oh, I'm, I'm busy with work. I'm busy with this. I'm busy with that. I'll be back. And then I would show up and, you know, do my thing for a, a month or two. And then I resign. And eventually, like I said, you know, you can only talk to somebody so much. Mm-hmm. You can't, you could lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink it. That's the saying. Like, right. uh, yeah, I'm an adult. You know, I was 32 years old. And um, eventually, not that they gave up, but if they saw me, they saw me. If they didn't, they didn't. They would call and check up on me and make sure I was all right. Well, it's not like and you were ordered, so they really came. No, no. But, you know, you, you develop friendships. You know, I'm still friends with all of those people. And I, I got married in Mexico five years ago, and they were all there. You know. Oh, cool. I, yeah, I mean, I built friendships. It's more about, it was more than just a program. It was more than going and stopping drinking. You know, you develop real friendships in that. And, um, you know, I maintain those friendships. So I guess they didn't really uh, you know, think I was doing anything wrong because at the time I wasn't getting high and I just wasn't going. So long story short, I hurt my back in June of 2008 on the job. I go to a doctor in August. He gives me a prescription for Vicodin. And I knew I shouldn't take it. You know, a few I months before, back problem. yeah, a few months before that, I had, I hurt my ankle. I stepped out of the truck and I, I cracked my ankle. I had a third, uh, second degree sprain, partially torn ligaments. I was in a lot more pain than I was with the back. I was offered prescription painkillers and I said, I'm an addict. I can't take them. Just give oh, me yeah. ibuprofen. But then five months later, I'm in a doctor's office and then he gives me the prescription for Vicodin. And I took it and I knew it was wrong. As soon as I put the prescription in my hand, I put it in my pocket. I walked out of the place and I drove to the same pharmacy that I had gotten caught at that last time with my mother. So I drive to that place and I'm sitting outside and I call my friend, my friend, Chris. And I tell him, I'm like, Chris, I have this prescription. I don't know what to do. He's like, listen, throw it away. Come to my house. He goes, we'll eat, we'll hang out, you know, we'll play video games. You'll be all right. I said, all right. I hang the phone up and I walked right into the pharmacy. I filled the script. I put the bottle in my car. I go to his house. I don't tell him. I don't tell anybody. And every day for breakfast, I would put, because I was out of work for my back. So I would put the bottle of painkillers in front of me. Like I was torturing myself. I put them in front of me and I would stare at them. And then one morning I took one. I took one Vicodin and... As soon as I stood up, I got that feeling, that warm blanket feeling, and that was it. You know, it. I heard somebody say this today. I can't remember where it was. Um, they always say that, you know, when you're an addict or an alcoholic, you pick up right where you left off, and you just go right into the thing. You just pick up, and you go, that wasn't the case with me. You know, I picked up one, and then it was two, and then I threw them away, and I struggled back and forth with it. And then about three months later, I said, you know what? I got to stop this. It's getting out of control. Let me put them down. Very minimal side effects. You know, I was taking a lot of them, but 
it was Vicodin. I wasn't taking them every day. So the withdrawal wasn't terrible. I was able to handle it. I put them down. I go about four or five months without taking any. And I forgot about it. And my four-year anniversary comes up in AA. And I rationalized it to myself saying that I didn't drink. You know, I just took painkillers so I could celebrate my fourth anniversary. And that's what I did. I went up there and I got my coin. And I always put my coins on my keychain. I couldn't put that one on there. You know, I went home and I put it in my drawer and the guilt ate at me. And um, June of 2009, I went to the pharmacy. I refilled the prescription. And I, I think by the end of the weekend, I took the whole bottle. And then it was 30, 40 pills a day that lasted till February of 2010. I called the same guy, Chris, tell him that, you know, I'm out of control. He says he was waiting for the call because by now I had stopped calling everybody. Um, I go on a maintenance program. I go on Suboxone, which is basically to curb the withdrawal symptoms and, you know, supposed to curb cravings. Mm-hmm. It for me, it just turned into another habit. Um, I learned how to abuse that. I learned how to abuse that with the painkillers. Um, I was good for about a little over a year on that program. I was weaning down like I was supposed to. And then in the summer of 2011, I hurt my foot. I had to have two foot surgeries. After the second one, I full blown relapsed on Vicodin. And, um, and that was it, you know. 2012, I had another surgery on my elbow. By now, I'm taking 30 milligram oxycodones every day. And then I start withdrawing from that. So the anxiety starts kicking up. I call my mother to go to her doctor. I go to her doctor. I tell her all the things I know she needs to hear to prescribe me what I want. She prescribes me Valium. I feel better. I go, she refers me to a psychiatrist. I go to the psychiatrist, I get prescribed clonopin. Within three months, I talk him up to giving me the max dose every day. Um, I'm going through those, you know, I'm getting a script of 90 on a Monday. By Thursday, there's 40 left. And I'm making the 40 last throughout the month until those start running out. And then I have to buy them in the street. I'm on heavy duty painkillers. Um, I had five different doctors prescribing me all this stuff. I'm going to five different pharmacies, um, dodging the drug tests at work. Um, I'm not emotionally there. Huh? How do you do How do I do that? You kind of get an idea when they're coming and not be there when they're there. Drive as little as you possibly can. Um, a lot of times, just don't go to work. You know, call out, call out sick pull out emergency leave. And you knew um, when they were going to do them. I didn't know when they were going to do them, but there's a thing on our job. They usually, they usually come about 10 minutes before roll call. But I used to just sit outside the garage. And if, you know, if it wasn't there, I would go in and sign in. If I saw it, I would just leave, you know, and um, it's a horrible way to live, you know, oh, and, and I work, I worked with heavy equipment. The drugs out of the system before it shows up. It, it all depends, you know, the amounts I was taking, it could be upwards of a week. You know, if you take one here and there, it could be a day or two, but the amount that was in my system, um, I really don't know. I don't know how long it would have been in my system. I'm assuming. Well, I don't want to give anybody any, any ideas here. Basically, we're wanting them to know that this is, 
not a fun way to live. And no, it's terrible. You know, you have to have you know fake urine in your locker, and it's just a horrible way to live. And um, seems like there's a a lot, a lot of lying. Oh, it's, and it's awful. And yeah. I can just see a vicious circle going around. Like, I well, I got to lie to do this. I have to deceive this person to do that. But then when you're sober, you're feeling guilty because you mm-hmm. did that to that person. So then you've got the mental stuff going on and that's awful. So then you got to take some more to make that mental stuff go. It's just a vicious circle, isn't it? Absolutely. It's like, a, I call it a hamster wheel. It's vicious. It's funny. I, every time I do a Zoom or I speak on a Zoom or I do an interview, I'm sitting in my kitchen and I look at the cabinet where I used to keep my pills. And I used to get up every morning and every morning I would wake up and I couldn't live without these pills anymore physically. So I, by this time I was taking Clonopin, I was taking Xanax and I was on opiates, whatever I could get, Vicodin, Percocet, Oxy, whatever I had, Suboxone. So I would get up in the morning and I would go to the cabinet. I would take two Clonopin or two Xanax, one and a half of Suboxone just to not be sick. Leave my house, go get a Red Bull drink the Red Bull, get to work, <laughs> do my route. And then once the route was up, done, I would go in the locker room and then I would take how I wanted to take. Then I would take a handful of them. I would go home and it was just every day, every day, every day, every day. But I was maintaining a life. I was maintaining appearances. I was in the gym every day. I looked good because I was taking steroids. So wow. I, yeah, I know. Physically, I looked all right. From the outside looking in, you know, I was engaged. I had a nice apartment. I drove a nice car. I had a great job. The bills were paid. So from the outside looking in, everybody's like, oh, this kid's got it all together. But on the inside, they didn't realize that the bills were only getting paid because I was $40,000 in debt. You know, the fiance was only still with me because she didn't know what was going on. You know, the rent was getting paid because I, it's, it was rough. It was rough. I can't even imagine the stuff going through your head and like, how the hell am I ever going to get out of all this? It did. I used to say, I used to say to myself, I can, I can't stop. I can't. I tried. I used to try to stop all the time. I used to, now Suboxone is supposed, as a drug that's supposed to get you off of Oxy and whatever. I used to, it was so hard for me to get off of that. I used to buy Roxy's, that 30 milligram oxycodone pills. I used to buy 20 of them on a weekend and say, I'm going to wean myself off of the Suboxone with the Oxy. So I'll take five today. I'll take five tomorrow. I'll take four, three, two, one. And then I'll be off and I won't have to deal with that. And I would go home and I would take all 20 in one night. And I'd be dope sick by Sunday. And I'd be back on Suboxone and the same thing over and over again. And then when I was on the Xanax and the Clonopin, that was the worst detox I ever had. Um, I've been, I've detoxed off of everything. I've been dope sick. And I, obviously I don't know if it's true. So I guess you can tell me those, those two are something you really don't want to oh. just get off of like you really need to go slowly and wean there's a lot yes. of side effects of, off of um yeah i mean the opiates the side effects are physically 
terrible, mentally terrible, um, but it's not going to kill you. You're going to feel awful, but it's not going to kill you. Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, all that stuff, you could die. Um, That's what I at least see. Yeah, um, it causes seizures when you come off of it. Um, I can't. You don't have help, right? Yeah, I mean, I had to. uh, So eventually, I I asked for help. Um, January of 2016, I went out to my car. Uh, it was there was a blizzard that I didn't show up for work for the first time in, in 10 years at the time. And um my wife, who was my fiance at the time, she had to go to work. So I went and I shoveled her out and I got in my car and I called my dealer up and I said I needed 90 more Xanax. And he he said to me, he said, Bo, he goes, You just bought 200 from me like the other day. And I had none left. Seriously? And I said, Bye. Yeah. yeah. Well, how many so milligrams I, were they? Two milligrams. They were the 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 sticks, the bar sticks, whatever people call them nowadays. Wow. Um, so it was two milligrams. It was the, then the strongest ones. You're supposed to break oh, them into four milligrams. pieces and take them. So yeah. I think it starts at 0.25. Yeah. And then go. Yeah. Down. So it's point to it. They break it like the, the two milligrams is a long stick and you could break them into wow. quarters. Okay. I was taking, I don't know how many I was taking a day, but I bought 200 on a Monday and by the following Monday they were gone. That's crazy. Like, so I call this guy up and he's like, all right. He goes, they'll be in your locker. I said, all right. So I get in the car and now I'm sitting in the car and I flip down the, the visor and I look at myself in the mirror and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I, I, uh, I can't do it anymore. I can't live like this. I have to do something because I'm, I'm going to destroy my life. It was getting to that point. I, and I describe it as like I was holding the door shut. It was like an avalanche coming down. I was holding the door shut for years and, and I couldn't hold it anymore. And I saw where it was going. It was, I was in a blackout for, for like two months straight. You know, um, I was starting to take Adderall because I couldn't keep my eyes open. Um, it, it was just, it was. Adderall, saw, isn't, that, isn't that for ADD? Yeah. Okay. It's so like, like an amphetamine. Happened. Yeah. So that's, I started to do that too. So now it was just, uh, it was already bad, but it was just, I saw where it was going. And I don't know, again, I, I always say divine intervention because next thing I know, I'm in, my, I'm in my house, I'm on my couch, and I'm on the phone with a guy that I had helped out a few years earlier. And I, I called him, I said, John, man, I need help. He's like, what do you mean? Man? I said, I need help. I said, I'm taking all these pills, blah, blah, blah. I said, you got to call the employee assistance unit for me. I didn't know how, to, I didn't know who to call. So he called him up for me and um, called me back. He told me who to call. I called him. Uh, a day later, I was in this guy's office and I told him, you know, what I was going through. And he told me, he goes, you know, you're going to have to go away. I said, whatever I got to do, man. I, you know, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Now, this is, this is still when you're working for the city, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, the same job I'm on today. Um yeah. Yeah, so I go to this guy and he tells me, he goes, you got to go away. I was like, all right, um, tell me where to go, when to go, and, and I'll be there. So he's like, all right, you're going to go tomorrow. We got a bed for you in Pennsylvania. It's nice. It was a really nice place. And, um, and I came home that night and I, I came home that night. I had some Klonopin left and I started to get shaky. So I just took them. And I remember me and my wife were in the car and now I have to go around. I have to go to my mother's house and tell her what's going on. I have to go to my brother-in-law's house and tell them. And 
I'm driving to all these people's houses and I'm crying. And by now I'm driving, it's, it, there's a blizzard out. There's snowbanks everywhere. My wife is, she's crying. She's like, you can't drive, you can't drive. Eventually I just pulled the car over. I said, I can't drive. I said, just get in the car and drive. We get home. Right in the middle of the snowstorm, you just pulled over and said, I can't drive? Yeah. Well, how'd you finish? She drove home. Oh, she drove home. Yeah, she drove the rest of the life. So she drives home, gets me home. (laughs) No, no, we got home. It wasn't that far away from my house by the time I gave up. Okay. Um, So the next day, a guy picks me up. I go to this place. And uh, the first two weeks I was there, it was the hardest detox I've ever been through. Um, I thought I was going to die. I describe it. I describe it to everybody I talk to. I describe it in the book as every step you take, you feel like it's going to be your last one. Um, every morning I woke up. Physical and emotional pain. Physical, physical emotional. Um, your brain doesn't work right. It, um, I couldn't talk. I would try to talk. And the wor- I knew what I wanted to say, but I couldn't get the words out. Brain um, I couldn't yeah I couldn't write um my hands would shake so bad I couldn't write I couldn't eat I couldn't sleep I lost 43 pounds in two weeks I was 100 I was 100 to help those symptoms no they well when I first got there I had, still had the stuff in my system so I was all right for the first couple of days and then when they stepped me out of detox I was in the actual rehab part of it that's when I started to really go through it Oof. they gave me they gave me what they could but I mean, it was something I was going to have to go through. They gave me something. They gave me stuff to calm my blood pressure. They gave me stuff to keep me alive. Basically, they didn't give me anything that was going to make me feel any better, but I wasn't going to die. Um, I did have a seizure at one point in my sleep. I was seeing things. Um, I looked like I looked like a skeleton. I looked terrible, but I was still waking up every morning and I was showing up. I was showing up to every group. I was participating the best I could. You know, um, and now, I was getting stuff out of it. To, like, did they come in and say, "Hey, it's time for meetings"? <clears throat> you just it, no. You have a schedule. You have a schedule. You, it's you're very right. responsible to follow that, right? They're, yeah, they're, they'll come in. No, they'll come in in the morning and wake you up. But you know, if you don't get out of bed, they're not going to drag you out of it. You know, they might throw you out of the place. But it's funny because about three weeks in, you know. I'm feeling better now. And now I know the place. So when new people come in, they assign you to a new person to show them around. Okay. So they assigned me this guy. And every time I go there, he's sleeping. <laughs> so I said to them, I said, I can't get this guy up. They're like, oh, don't worry about it. He's detoxing. You could leave him in there. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, no, we don't make people for in detox go to meetings and do anything. I was like, nobody told me that. <laughs> I was like, you guys, you guys had me doing yoga when I could, I could barely stand up straight. I said, now you're telling me he could sleep, but it, it was for the best because, you know, I got to know everybody in the place. And as time went on, I started to feel physically better. And then one night I was just starting to feel better, still very shaky, but feeling better. And I get called down to the office and um, it's my mother. Um, actually, it was my wife on the phone. And um, my uncle had passed away. And I knew my uncle was sick when I left, but he passed away in the hospital. And they wanted me to come to the wake, obviously. And the treatment center gave me the option. They said, we'll give you a pass. And you could go and, uh, you know, you could go and come back the next day. 
and I, I left the office and I thought about it and I struggled with it. And then I was walking down the hallway and there was a counselor that I kind of liked. He was like the night counselor. Mm-hmm. And I went into his office. I just shut the door behind me and I sat down. I didn't say anything. He goes, what's wrong? And I started crying. I said, I can't leave. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, my uncle passed away. He said, they want me to go to the funeral. I can't leave here. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, I don't want to get high. I said, but I can't feel like this outside. I said, the only thing that's keeping me safe is being in here right now because I feel terrible. If I go out there, I'm going to take something to make me not feel terrible. And I don't know if I'll make it back. So in other words, it became your safe place for a while. Yes. Yes. And I just knew it. I knew if I left that I would take something again, not because I wanted to get high, but because I was still physically right. sick and I wanted something to make me feel better. So I wind up calling my family. I tell them I can't come. And, um, you know, my cousin passed away at 33 years old from this disease. You know, they found him in his bathtub. He had an aneurysm brought on by drug use and uh, he died at 33. You know, and me and him got high together, you know, basically grew up together. And I knew my uncle would understand. Actually came to me in a dream that night telling me he understood. And, um, and from that day on, you know, I felt better and I started participating in groups and my job got me another week of treatment in there. And um, I left there on February, I left there on March 1st of 2016. So my sober day, January 27th, 2016, I was in treatment for 35 days, came out. Um, I went to outpatient for another month and, um, and, you know, life has been a very nice ride since, um, you know, with your story, there's gosh, there's so much of it. Um, but there's, there's some things I want to go back on before I, I, I ask you to share some things um i don't think we ever really found first of all do you do you believe in mental health absolutely um because that's the category that i follow under and you know you for years people thought of mental health as a bad, bad thing, you know, and didn't want to admit to something like that. And I, so I really feel like that's one thing that we need to push out there is the awareness of it. So what I'm going to ask you is I'm, I'm going to name some things that um, people could go through or are going through that might cause the drinking, the drug use and all that. And I want you to tell me how many of these you had. Okay. So uh, low self-esteem, self-hatred, wanting to fit in, fear of abandonment, physical pain, mental pain, anxiety, just wanting to feel normal. Yeah, all of the above. All of them. All of the above. And don't don't you feel like those are all things that should be introduced into mental health? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. 
Okay, so you've got an amazing story. First of all, it sounds like with the city that they really do good by their employees. They do. Um, if you ask for help, they will help you, you know. Um, and you get to very keep good job, but obviously you, yeah. not if you kept doing it or probably not. But. Yeah, I mean, listen, people do lose their jobs. You know, they could only, again, they could only help to an extent. They sure. can't endanger the people of the city. They can't, you have to fulfill your part, of, your end of the bargain. Did your, you know, insur- did the insurance cover the stay there? Yes. Yep. Insurance covered it. Don't have that option. Um, I know. And and so that's a sad thing. And then a lot of states don't have state institutions where you can get help anymore either. I know. Um, They just, they never closed it, but they closed it's like outside visitors. But I speak at a a state-run facility in Staten Island every, I do, I go there twice a month. And um, that's Stanton Island. Yeah, it's called uh, South Beach ATC. Um, yeah, I mean, listen. What age group do you speak to, or just all people? It, it varies. Uh, it could. I've spoken to as young as eighteen, as old as seventy. You know, it, it all depends. It all depends on who's in there when I go up. Um, okay. it's. I say this all the time. It doesn't matter where you go. If you're ready, for, if you're ready to be helped, it could be a hundred thousand dollar rehab in Beverly Hills, or it could be a state-run facility on the North Shore of Staten Island. If you're ready and you're willing to do the work, you can get better. You know, you can get sober. Yeah, but you got to be willing. You know, you got to be willing. You got to be willing to do the work very, when you get out. I had an actress that I was interviewing one time with her addiction, and obviously, she had the money to go to this wonderful beautiful facility that was almost like a spa thing and she said I said well that must have made it easier and she said no it still doesn't take all the things away that you got to go through to get to the point yeah you got to go through it it doesn't it it would matter if you had the most luxurious place in the world versus the worst paid place in the world you still got to go through all those things and there's those those luxuries don't take away all that so um what 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 would you classify as your biggest life struggle then to get to the point where you were my biggest life struggle is just getting over my my insecurities you know getting past my fear of everything uh it just not not just fear and like not you know being afraid of the dog just fear fear of success fear of failure Worrying about the future, fear of running out of money, just fear, just living my whole life in fear. Fear. But what about when, I mean, when this all started, do you, so many people are now, now going back to, there was some kind of trauma in their childhood. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I try not to blame anything on anyone but there were definitely factors that led to what I was doing I think you know when you look up to somebody for so long and they turn out to be somebody completely different and the life that you had gets blown up you know the family that you thought was wasn't it does traumatize you you know Mm -hmm. and then losing my father at a young age um looking back on it yeah absolutely it all affected me 
And and I don't think there's anything wrong with saying those things factored into it. Um, as far as blame, this is just my own opinion. And through watching my brothers and my sisters that all went through this, um, I don't feel like you can really blame a person. I think you can go through those traumas and be traumatized and that be the beginning of it. But at some point, you you have a choice of saying, I don't want to live this way. I want to get help. I, I think our parents, especially back in, in the in the nineteen um, eighties, late seventies, early eighties, on into the nineties, I think they were doing the best they could. And and you know, hopefully, parents change that now, and they're more aware because I think that's one of the messages we want to get out there is for parents to become more aware of what's going on, and and take a step in it which I'm sure that's a hard thing to do. But don't you agree? We need to get them out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Parents, I think, I think education, I think the school system should, should get people in there to talk about this stuff at a younger age than they do. You know, everybody says, well, they're too young to hear that. They're too young to hear that. I know 20 people that I interact with on a weekly basis. I started drinking when they were 10 years old. So when is too young? I mean, you know, I think it's how, however you put it, because I started with both my kids. Well, first of all, I was, I was so afraid because I, I would have the gene. Okay. Not, not all people with addictions had a gene of addiction. So it's something that became an addiction after doing it for so long. But when you have the gene of addiction, it could be any anything you know what I'm saying it doesn't have to be alcohol or drugs there could be other addictions mine sugar yeah absolutely my father my father had gambling sex my and but it right so it runs in my family and so knowing that and then I went through Al-Anon okay so that I knew how to look for things too and and how to deal with the Attic. Um, I, I suggest that to people. Um, I, I know that it's not everywhere now, but I am finding out more and more that there's things that are like, first of all, I didn't know if there was anything more than AA and NA, but now I'm finding out there's CO A. Oh, yeah. CA. Is it A for anything? Yeah, there's an A for anything. Yeah. Um, which which is a good thing, but do they have a program for the family members for all those? As far as I know, um, I, I don't know because I'm not in those programs, but as far as I know, they do have one for AA, they have Al Anon, I believe NA has Naranon. I've never heard of. Yeah, gambling, I think has uh I think they have one for the families. I'm not sure about the other ones. So one of the things that I would feel that we should suggest to the public is that the family members, whatever, if they have to go through a counselor, maybe that deals with with um, addictions and stuff, but somehow so that they know 
how, you know, they've got, they have to have anger themselves, uh, hurt, all, all those things that the addict probably experienced too. And probably some bitterness that, hey, I didn't, you know, I didn't go and do all those things to take away the pain that you were causing me. You know, I was the one sticking to that. I understand all that. Yeah. You got to get through that part too. So, or they can end up turning into. An Absolutely. Addict. You know, I have friends, I have friends and I, I talk to their wives, their significant others. And, you know, I say, you have to understand, like, while he was out or she was out doing this, this, and this, you were home, taking care of the kids, taking care of the house, taking care of the money. Obviously, you're going to have some resentments. There's a, sick, there's a sickness within that, you know, mm-hmm. and the other people have to understand that just because you went away and got sober doesn't mean you come home and everything's all better. Everything's all right. you, know, you have to work. You have to earn that trust back. But so, um, yeah. So are you still married now? Yes, I am. Five, it'll be five years in July. And um, have you had any... Not- I'm not going to say, have you fallen off the wagon because you haven't, right? No, um, no. six years and a few months. But do you have times where something's getting hard enough that you it crosses your mind and then you talk to somebody? I haven't in a long time. Good. It did. Ha- it did happen to me. Um, this was a very pivotal point. Of, uh, of my recovery in my life. It was, I was probably sober about three. It was right about the same time that I had relapsed the first time around. It was about three years and change, three and a half years. And I had just got, I got promoted on my job. So my schedule had all changed up. My life was kind of different. And it was right around my wedding anniversary. It was actually in August. And we went to my, my in-laws house for dinner and her father had fallen. And he hurt his back. Mm-hmm. So when I walked in the house, I'm standing in the kitchen and he puts a bottle of Vicodin in my hand oh, and boy. asked me, he asked me, and he doesn't know. I mean, he knew I would wait, but he doesn't know the extent of anything. Sure. So he, he asked me and he's like, are these good? Can I, can I take these with wine? Because he likes to drink wine. So I said, I, I looked at it and her grandfather, who he's 92 years old. He's off the boat, barely speaks English. Always offers me a beer. Every time I walk into the house till this day, puts a beer in my other hand, like at the same time. So I'm sitting in a kitchen. Oh my gosh. With a bottle, with a bottle, with a bottle of Vicodin in one hand and a beer in the other hand. And I'm looking at my wife and my sister and I'm like, what's going on here? And I gave the beer back. I said, no, I'm good. I gave the pills back. I said, you can take them. Don't drink wine with them and be careful. And I left it off. And I went throughout the rest of the night, but it was eating at me. It was bothering me. And um, I go home that, but I didn't call anybody, you know? And then by the time I get home that night, it's 1130. I didn't want to call him. I didn't want to bother anybody. There were 10 people I could have called that night, but I, I have this thing that I don't want to appear weak. You know, I could give advice and I could give help, but I don't as readily accept it. That's the ego thing. Yes. Yes. So I don't want to call anybody. I'll be all right. If I wake up tomorrow and I still feel the same way, then I'll call somebody. So I wake up the next day. I still feel it, but I have to go to work. So I go to work and I'm working in, I think it was Bushwick, New York, uh, Brooklyn. 
and they do homeless encampment cleanups. Like they go out, they reach out to the homeless people, ask them if they want shelter, and then they clean up around the area. So I was in charge of that whole thing. So I have my people with me and we were waiting for the police department to come and homeless outreach. And as this is going on, I'm, I'm so busy doing the paperwork, I'm not thinking about it. The guy from homeless outreach shows up and we start talking. And one thing leads to another. He tells me that he's sober five years and he does this on the side because this is part of his service. This is part of his recovery program. And he wants to open up a restaurant in the future. We start talking. So I open up about my story and I tell him about the night before and how much it's bothering me. And we talk it out for like an hour. We talked, I get everything done. I go back to the depot. I fill all the paperwork out. I go home. I drive on the way home. I, I call my sponsor. I tell him. I go to a meeting that night. I share about it in the meeting. And like the next two or three days, I, I talk about it to anybody who will listen. And I look back on that. And that guy, like this is, they say you eventually come to find like your idea of God and you come to, uh, mm -hmm. can't remember the wording right now, uh, whatever it is. That was the day. That was the day that I believed that there was something looking out for me greater than myself because I wasn't going to call anybody. And it was like, all right, well, if you're not going to call somebody, I'm going to put somebody in your life to get you through this. Wisen up next time, basically. And from that day on, and it's a dramatic change in the way I live, the way I look at things, my whole outlook upon life. I'm very positive about everything. Um, even through all this, the last two years, two plus years has been, it's been trying for a lot of people. I ask you, yeah, I mean, it's been hard for everybody, but I, I can imagine with having addictions and having to be, you know, closed down and not work and all the things that that could be a huge deal. Um, you know, that, that was the one blessing with me. I, I had to go to work. You know, we're essential workers, so I do work in an office, so I wasn't out in the street, but we did have to show up to work every day. So I was never locked down, so to speak. I mean, all I was doing was going to work and coming home, but I was getting out every day and I would go on, you know, thank God. I, I always say it was like the proudest I was ever, the proudest I had ever been to be part of 12 Steps is when, at the beginning, when Nobody knew what to do. And a couple of people got together and said, let's do it on Zoom. And it blew up. You know, it blew up around the world that they're still going on. And that's how a lot of people got through it. Yeah. But a lot of people, but a lot of people didn't get through it. You know, a lot of people did pass away. A lot of people are struggling to this day because of it. A lot of people did relapse. Right. And um, I thank God that I didn't and I made it through. And that's why I just look at life in a different way. Now, I'm not afraid of anything, you know. Whatever it's going to be is going to be, you know, I know as long as I'm living my life the right way, things are going to happen for the right reason. Whether I like that reason or I don't like that reason, things are going to happen the way they do. You know, so me do and my you wife. have a special quote that you try to live by or a saying or something that you like, can, that you keep for yourself, you know, that you use for a affirmation maybe i like i like the serenity prayer you know it's back to basics that's that's it right there you know 
courage to accept the things we can, I change courage to change things we can, wisdom to know the difference. You know, that says it all. You know, there's certain things that I have no control over, and I have to give that up to a higher power, God, you, whatever your higher power is. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I have to do. And that's, I apply that to everything in my life. You know, me and my wife have struggled since 2018 trying to have a child. And, you know, it just isn't working. And IVF and the whole nine, and she's been through so much miscarriages. And really, um, I look at her now and the strength that she's shown through this whole thing has been amazing. And the fact that I could be there with her and for her through the whole thing has been great. And it wasn't in the cards for us with that. I don't know if it's in the cards with us naturally. I don't know what's in the cards for us. I know whatever it is, it's what's supposed to be, and it's for the best. And um, a lot of people say, oh, that's great. That's, that's, that's how I deal with it, and that's how I live, and that's how I feel, and I'm okay with that. you remember the first day that you came to the realization that there was a higher power? Yeah, that was the day that I talked to that, that man. That's that was the day you, you knew that that there- was the day, you know, I had said it before and I went to Catholic school for 13 years of my life and my mother's very religious and, um, you know, I've been in 12 steps since 2005 and I always said high power and I had tattoos of Jesus and Mary and all over me, but that was the day, that day that that guy was put in my life was the day I realized that there's something out there. Oh, there's something out there looking for you, looking out for you. And I know some people ask, you know, if if there is this higher power, what the heck took them so long? Why why 27 years? Why 20 years? Why you know whatever? But I guess it comes down to he knew or she knew or whoever that higher power is when it was time. What you had to go through to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, it all got me to where I am. And, you know, maybe this is why maybe I'm supposed to be out here helping other people. And that's why I had to go through what I went through. I believe, totally believe that. So to end this, would you like to share on social media of any kind? um, Your your name, like, do you want it out there that somebody can talk to you if they need yeah. to find out? In Abs- Absolutely. Um, my Instagram is tfiggy, T-F-I-G-G-Y, 0918. Um, I'm on Facebook, Tommy Figs, T-O-M-M-Y-F-I-G-S. And I also have a page on Facebook for the book. It's the title of the book. That's what junkies do. Right. And, and that you can, can reach out to me on any of those. So you can buy that on Amazon. Yes, you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble's carries Barnes it. Barnes and Noble, yeah. Target, uh, Walmart, they it's pretty much everywhere now. You know, I'm I'm old fashioned, but um so I've got Kindle and I've got um what's the thing that Barnes and Noble's the uh, uh Nook. The Nook. Nook. Yeah. yeah. And I use both of them. I personally, I mean, I wrote the book. My personal favorite version of it is the audio version. Mm-hmm. Um, I the paperback came out last May, and then the uh, the ebook came out in 
June. So it was selling pretty well. And a couple of people reached out to me asking me if I was interested in doing an audible. And I emailed one of the guys back and I said, how do I go about it? And they actually have a site. You go on Audible's website, you put, a, you put the book up there, you put an audition script and you have people and they send you auditions. And I was listening to an auditions for like two so weeks. Somebody else and actually reads it? Yes, yes, yes. So I've listened to auditions for a couple of weeks and I still didn't know if I wanted to do it myself or if I didn't. I just really didn't have the time to put into that. Mm-hmm. So I listened to this one guy and I was in, I was in a Target parking lot with my wife and her brother and they were going in to get me Starbucks. And I listened to the guy for like the first part of it. And I said, oh, this guy's terrible. I don't want to listen to this anymore. They went inside and I said, you know what, let me give it a chance. And I listened to it again. And as he, as he started and I started listening to him, I was like, I, I love this guy, his voice, everything about him. So I emailed them like a week later and I said, I'm going to send you another chapter. I want you to read that one for me. And if I like that, then we'll move forward. I sent him the chapter. He read it. He knocked it out of the park and uh, turns out he's in recovery too. He's, uh, he's an actor. He does this on the side and um, we went through the whole process uh, through audible he would read them. He would send them to me. Um, I would okay it, send it back. And I think it came out at the end of August. And it's by far my favorite version of the book. The way I give this guy so much credit, his name is, give me one second, Shannon, Shannon Weaver. Shannon or Shannon? Shannon, S-H-A. Let me get the right spelling of his name. I don't want to butcher his name. One second. Yes, it's Shannon Weaver, S H A N O N. Just one N? Yes. Weaver, W E A V E R. And he just did just an unbelievable job of, of reading it. He did things that I was going to suggest to him before I suggested it to him. And, um, and it really came out uh, unbelievably. And it's, it's actually the best-selling version of the book. So. This doesn't make sense. I was seeing if he was on Instagram. Yeah, he's on Instagram. Okay. I personally am a visual person. I always have been. If I, in fact, last night my son was, um, he had a philosophy paper he had to write and on a certain subject and whatever. And I always loved philosophy, but he hates it. So he, he came to me and he's like, so, and he's telling me, 
you know, what this philosophy is and what this one is and what, what, which one would I pick for this certain thing, whatever, but he's reading it and he's reading it super fast. I can't even comprehend the whole thing. And I'm like, hold on, just, and he goes, oh, that's right. You're a visual person. And that's it. I, if I listen to somebody, unless it's like a meditation thing, um, I can't because they have to talk really slow for me to get everything, but visually then I can stop. I can underline something, you know what I'm saying? So I'm a visual person, but I do have, um, because I have a problem going to sleep at night. I like, I I work so late and then I do Mm -hmm. stuff. And then by the time I get home, I'm like, got all these things going through my mind. So I, I have to get on some type of sleep meditation podcast. Okay. And it's Shelly Cove, or I'm sorry, Sleep Cove called Sleep Cove. And I remember the first time I listened to it, the guy's voice irritated me. Um, but the sounds in the background did not. He's got a very good voice, so very slow and talks you right through. And it's not just for sleeping, but I can be five minutes into his voice now and fall right asleep and as great deep sleep, you know, which is what we need. We need that REM to heal our brain, get rid of all that junk that we're not supposed to save in there and all that. So, okay. Well, do you have any last things that you would like to share um, places that people can contact or is there any kind of programs that you support? Um, right now, I, my life is very busy uh, between work and the book and podcasts. And I highly recommend 12 steps. Um, I do highly recommend, I don't know if you ever heard the Heron project. I have um, heard about it. Can you spell that? Okay. H E R R. E-N project. I think I just um, heard about it today. Back. Yeah, he's, uh, Chris Heron was a, a basketball player, played in the yeah. NBA and wound up having a bad drug problem and he speaks all over the world. He wound up opening two treatment centers and he started a foundation and they help people get into treatment. And, I think um, Joe Rogan had him on and I heard him I don't, I don't know him personally. I did. I haven't met him. I have heard him speak. I don't know him personally. I don't have any stake in his stuff. I just really believe in what he does. Mm-hmm. I believe in what his foundation does. I donate to it. So anytime somebody reaches out to me that I don't know, or if I, I don't know what to tell them, I tell them, listen, call this place and see what they can do for you. And, uh, and they do great work. They really do. Um, so, and listen, yeah. Anybody, anywhere, if you're struggling and you need to reach out to somebody, you don't know who my social medias are out there. I'm very responsive to them. Um, I talk to people all over the world. I can't cure anything, but I could kind of guide you in the right direction. You know, that's I'm willing good. to that's do good it. No. Um, do you have a website? No, right now I just have a link tree, like a link on, like it's on my Instagram, it's on my Facebook. You can click the link and it gives you where to buy the book, all my, all the interviews I've done. And uh, that's all for right now. I do want to expand at some point. I would like to start speaking in more, I was gonna more ask places. You. Yeah, right now I just do the, I do the treatment center twice a month. And then 
that program that I went through at work, they actually just reached out to me about a month ago. And a lot of people had been coming out of treatment saying that they read my book. So they asked me to speak to a support group that they do. I did that. And now we're going to continue doing that. You know, every couple of months, we're going to do a topic-based meeting. And um, it's something that I definitely would like to do in the future. You know, my job takes up a lot of my time right now, but um, it's definitely something that I'm looking to do and, and look forward to doing in the future because I enjoy speaking. I enjoy telling my story. I enjoy helping people. And uh, it helps me, you know, it helps me in my recovery. And hopefully I can help other people along the way. Well, I appreciate that because that's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing too, is to get it out there for people to get help. And um, if you didn't know, life struggles is anything. It's not just on addiction, but it's on any kind of life struggle that somebody's going through and is conquering it or has conquered it. So some things, as you know, you'll always be in recovery. Um, some some people don't understand that. You know, when I you know. Say, I'm in recovery, um, I'm a recovering addict. Yeah. Or, um, but you're, you know, you're you're always in that. Um, yeah. But there's also some things like panic disorder. Um, that's really panic disorders are really, really big right now. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with admitting that you have anxiety. I mean, this no. world is full of anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, my wife's going through it now Yeah, you know, with all no. the, with the IVF and the infertility and the anxiety. And I feel terrible for her, but I, you know, I try to tell her that it's, it's real, but it's gonna, it's gonna pass, you know, and you have to kind of learn how to kind of hone it. And so I'm, have her listen to my one on panic disorders because we okay. give a whole lot of tips on things to do what you know if you're having a panic attack you know and to prevent them and all that kind of stuff so okay um, no I'll definitely tell her yeah it, it's a really good one in fact it's one of my top ones as, really? as okay. yeah yeah I'll definitely check it out yeah so we're both doing the, the same thing. Basically we're out here trying to help people. So um, spread the word. I'm going to probably for the whole next week after I get this all edited, okay. uh, hopefully there won't be too much in there and I'll be putting that out plus the book. So um, on the book, I'll probably, I don't, I can tell them about Linktree, but I'll be putting where they can. Yeah, Amazon. The Amazon Amazon is probably the best one because it has all three yeah, versions. And I can put the so, link right in there with it. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so right. much. Um, Chris, I'm, it was a pleasure. It really was. And can I, I just want to say one last thing to you. And that yes. is, I, I hope that you're giving yourself credit because to me, it sounds like you made that final choice. You weren't forced into it. No, and not at all. even though there was people around you that maybe want once in a while, it didn't sound like you were being pushed a whole lot. Or I've seen yeah. a lot of people pushed or like family intervened and said, you're going or else. And it sounds to me like you ended up on your own saying, okay, I'm ready. I'm done. I need the help. Yeah. Uh, enough is enough. And uh, I'm definitely I'm proud. Helped, even if somebody helped you still, you know, that person makes a final decision yeah. and you did uh, that. So congratulations. Um, on that. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm definitely, I'm proud of the life I lead today. And, uh, and you should, you be. know, I am, I am.
And like I said, my mess, my mess became a message. So. All right. Well, you have a good right. evening. And Christy, thank you, you so too. Much for on. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Good night. Wow. That was such an inspiring and empowering story by Tom. And I just really, really appreciate when somebody comes on and they're so raw and real and they've taken something that was so hard going on in their life and turned it into something so positive. I want everybody to know that even though there were suicide attempts, um, a lot of mental abuse, that we don't judge anybody on these, but we pray for them, we encourage them, we empower them. And also, I will be putting a company that you can go to if you need help. This podcast was made to help people, as is almost every one of our podcasts. 